Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Usani Matebula and Mosibudu Makura. Your top stories. The Executive Council of the African Union has begun its two-day deliberations on the agenda of the 26th African Union Summit. And despite growing interest in safeguarding biodiversity of livestock and poultry, 17% of breeds are at risk of extinction. In business, Kenya's Nairobi Securities Exchange signs up six leaders as clearing banks for its yet-to-be-launched derivatives markets. And in sports, South Africa's Bavunyana Banyana in the first phase of preparations for Rio Olympics. Here's Usaina Matebula. Good evening. African states are trying to push uh, President Pierre Nkurunziza to accept peacekeeping troops at the summit this week to prevent Burundi sliding back into ethnic conflict. However, political scientists uh, say there is little hope that he will agree. The African Union announced a plan in December to send 5,000 peacekeepers to Burundi. More than 400 people have been killed in worse violence since an ethnically charged civil war ended in 2005. And five Kenyan policemen were killed on Tuesday in the coastal count of uh, Lamu after their truck hit an improvised explosive device planted on the road by Islamist militant Al-Shabaab. It is the latest in a series of attacks near the Kenyan border with uh, Somalia. Al-Shabaab took credit for the attack, which comes less than two weeks after Somali Islamist militants attacked a military camp housing Kenyan soldiers who are part of an African Union force in Somalia called Amisom. And local residents in Badade in southern Somalia say the Islamist militants Al-Shabaab have retaken the district following the withdrawal of the Kenyan forces operating under the African Union peacekeepers. Kenyan forces have pulled out from two military bases in Somalia, including one attacked by Al-Shabaab 11 days ago. Executive Director of the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa, Jackie Ciliaris, elaborates. The fact that you have troops from neighboring countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, and so on involved in Amisom is almost goes against the grain of the tradition of peacekeeping, which is supposed to be impartial troops from countries that don't have a vested interest. And this is unfortunately a problem that we have in the African standby force. And unfortunately, this is a a function of uh, how peacekeeping in Africa works because we don't have the resources to bring in troops, let's say, from Nigeria or from South Africa uh, and to bring them to Somalia and to deploy, feed and sustain them in, uh, in that country. Merpad, through the African Union, has asked the Malawian government to engage local suppliers of medicinal products in its quest to deal with the escalating shortage of drugs that have hit hospitals. Hospitals, especially public ones, continue to run out of drugs despite the 2015-2016 budget allocations. George Mango reports from Lilongwe. Malawi's major referral and other public hospitals are the worst affected in terms of the availability of drugs. Patients who cannot afford private hospitals or clinics where the most burdens are the queue in vain for medical care in such hospitals. AU and NEPAD also think that poor optimal investments in the health care service delivery systems 
hamper Malawi's progress as most patients are sent back or die due to lack of medical care in hospitals. Cameroon has closed most of its northern markets on the border with Nigeria after Monday's series of bomb attacks left 35 people killed and 70 seriously wounded in the Central African nation's town of Bodo. The country's Minister of Communications, Isa Chiroma Bakari, says it was the 30th attack by suspected Boko Haram fighters on Cameroon in barely one month since uh, this year started. Moki Kinzaika reports from the capital, Yawonde. After Monday's attack that left at least 35 people dead and over 70 injured, Cameroon soldiers launched raids on the Nigerian town of Ashigashia, where they believe the suicide bombers came from. Cameroon's Minister of Communication and Government spokesperson, Isa Chiruma Bakari, says 17 insurgents were killed in the operation they launched to stop what is said was persistent attacks on Cameroon's territory. Isa Chiruma Bakari says Cameroon has counted at least 30 attacks on its territory this year. And finally, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb has released a video of a suicide nun who was kidnapped in northern Mali nearly three weeks ago. This is the first claim of responsibility for the hostage-taking by the group. The video, which outlines uh, the conditions for the release of Beatrice Stokely, a Swiss missionary who was based in Timbuktu is the latest indication of deteriorating security in Mali's north just months after a peace accord was signed. AQIM claimed responsibility for a November assault on a Bamako hotel in Mali in which gunmen took hostages and killed 20 people as well as an attack on January 15 on a Burkina Faso hotel and a restaurant in which uh, armed assailants took hostages and killed 30. And that's your news for now. I'm back at the bottom of the hour with your headlines. Thank you very much, Usani, for that update. It's 1707 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours this evening. The Executive Council of the African Union has begun its two-day deliberations on the agenda of the 26th African Union Summit, scheduled from the 30th and 31st of this month. Talks are expected to focus on issues like how to enhance the sustainability of the continent with respect to political, social, and economic aspects. Here's Coletto Anjoy. The Executive Council of the African Union is comprised of the foreign affairs ministers from the 54 African member states of the African Union. The Council has begun discussing items that they feel should be given priority by the African heads of state and government when they convene later this week at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The Executive Council is expected to recommend that heads of states discuss further the implementation of Agenda 2063, a 50-year continental plan for development. It may also put on agenda items of how to speed up implementation of alternative sources of funding for the continent, as well as continental free trade area discussions that had already begun. However, as expected, peace and security issues in the continent will top the agenda recommendations. Burundi in particular, since its conflict is still fresh and seems to be intensifying with time. 
The council is expected to recommend that heads of states consider the need to forcefully deploy the 5,000 African Union troops that had been recommended by the African Union Peace and Security Council into Burundi and save the citizens of the country. Continuing conflicts like Mali, Libya and the fragile peace in South Sudan is also expected to be put in for discussion. Carlos Lopez, the UN Undersecretary General and Executive Director of the Economic Commission for Africa, warns that the continent should be keen to notice that insecurity tendencies that are attracting human rights violations are becoming a trend in the continent and perpetrators seem to be getting away with it. Do we recognize on what we call terrorists, be it Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, or those who perpetrate the carnages in Central African Republic or South Sudan, a similar rule booking, killing without remorse, doing it like a job, better than planting or surviving in the periphery, and then have a good drink and laugh at the panic provoked and media attention. How can this happen? How can this continue to happen? The African Union Commission chairperson, Dr. Kosazan Aslamini Zuma, also adds that there is need for presidents to be encouraged to push for the independence of Western Sahara from Morocco. The issue of Western Sahara has been handled by the UN, and we really need to push the UN to ensure that we do, it does everything that should be done to move the process of Western Sahara forward. It is really not acceptable that for so long nothing has happened. Africa's military strength is also expected to be set for discussions by African presidents. In particular, the progress of the African standby force that missed its December 2015 operationalization deadline, as well as the challenges of African peacekeeping missions in the continent, with specific reference to the one in Somalia, Amisom, that has suffered consecutive attacks from Al-Shabaab terrorists in the recent years. Collector Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Cameroon has closed most of its northern markets on the border with Nigeria after Monday's series of bomb attacks left at least 35 people killed and 70 seriously wounded in the central African nation's town of Bordeaux. The country's Minister of Communication and Government spokesperson Issa Chiroma Bakari in a news conference said it was the 30th attack by suspected Boko Haram fighters on Cameroon in barely one month since this year started. Moki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. The decision to close all markets on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria till further notice was announced by the governor of the far north region of Cameroon, Midjiya Wabakari. The decisions have been taken to close some market in the border, but people are persisting to go to sell and to buy things. You know that Boko Haram is looking where people are gathering to do this and that. After Monday's attack that left at least 35 people dead and over 70 injured, Cameroon soldiers launched raids on the Nigerian town of Ashigashia where they believe the suicide bombers came from. Cameroon's Minister of Communication and Government spokesperson, Isa Chiruma Bakari, says 17 insurgents were killed in the operation they launched to stop what is said was persistent attacks on Cameroon's territory. Isa Chiruma Bakari says Cameroon has counted at least 30 attacks on its territory this year. On the 9th of January 4 to 5, 2016, the same insurgents attacked Bakari subdivision, leaving 61 hurt 
burned. Still on the same night, the locality of Mozogo was again besieged by the same criminals. Again, on that same night, the locality of Kerawa was subject to intense looting with stealing of cattle and food. On January 7, Boko Haram led yet another attack on the locality of Ashigashia, killing one villager, carrying away 45 bicycles, 30 carriers, and 150 small remnants before abducting six other villagers and forcing them to herd the stolen cattle to Nigeria. On January 10, 2016, the chief of the FEMA village was murdered with two of his elders. Several compounds were looted and burned. Isa Chiruma Bakari adds that during the raids, they discovered two corpses of Cameroonian policemen the insurgents kidnapped less than two weeks ago. Faced with such harassment, both ungrounded and unjustified, our defense and security forces have always retaliated, leading the enemy to incur serious setbacks that have considerably weakened the group and reduced it to mere acts of cowardice, especially suicide bombings, which have become its modus operandi. Shock and consternation has gripped Bodo, where Monday's attack took place. Businessman Aruna Rafael says it will take time for him and the people to recover in spite of the heavy deployment of troops. Pour l'instant, comme on voit toujours, il y a des manifestations dans les villages voisins. Et peut-être c'est ça qui... He says all activities have come to a standstill in the locality and even in neighboring villages, and they hope that the government will continue to encourage them. He says soldiers have been sent to the locality, that traditional leaders, church leaders and the administration have been coming round to encourage them. He says they have to continue collaborating with the police. Blocking the activities, that doesn't pass anymore. There are too many controls, but really... In Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, groups of people have been visiting and sympathizing with elites of Bordeaux. Ngufo Jacob, leader of Cameroon's University Students Association, says his group, by visiting people from Bordeaux based in Yaoundé, also shows solidarity with Cameroon and Nigerian forces fighting the Boko Haram insurgency. I came out to show solidarity with my brothers and sisters in the north who are suffering from the onslaught of the Boko Haram insurgents. I came out also to show to the military that we are one, we are together. We may not have guns to join them in the north, but they should know that we have them at heart, we are praying for them, we are supporting them. Cameroon believes the militants have resorted to attacking mosques, markets, churches and palaces of traditional rulers because the terrorist group's firepower has been drastically reduced following ceaseless attacks on their strongholds within the past two months by Cameroon and Nigerian troops. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. I am an African.
I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotugel, and the sands of the Kharahati have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. At times, and in fear, I have wondered whether I should concede equal citizenship of our country to the leopard and the lion, the elephant and the springbok, the hyena, the black mamba, and the pestilential mosquito. A human presence among all of these, a feature on the face of our native land just defined, I know that none dare challenge me when I say I am an African. This is Channel Africa, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 1718 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. Remember that you can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1 there. You can follow us and suggest maybe some content and engage with us as well on some of our contents that we have here on Channel Africa. Now, South Africa is today observing National Police Day. The day has been set aside annually to mark the date on which the South African Police Services Act of 1995 was promulgated. The country's president, Jacob Zuma, has in a statement extended his good wishes for the women and men in blue. He has further commended their ongoing efforts to maintain the rule of law. To elaborate on the significance of this day, here's Richard Mamabulu, who is the communications officer at the Police and Prison Civil Rights Union, Pop Crew. Look, I think uh, the first thing that it means for the men and women in blue is the fact that uh, they play a significant role in the country, of course, in combating crime. But also, uh, you'd remember that in South Africa specifically, we had a police force, South African police force, under the apartheid days, and of course, moved towards a police service, which of course uh, uh, would obviously require a civilian oversight in ensuring that uh, we of course mend the relations that we've had, uh, well, police in general, between police and communities. And of course, I think uh, one thing that is still a challenge in our country is that uh, since the times of apartheid, especially the majority of black people will treat police uh, with suspicion. Now, when you look at some of the main obstacles that are facing the policemen and women at this time, really, do you feel that enough has been done to ensure that uh, we don't see more of these killings taking place in the line of duty? 
Look, I think there are two aspects to that. The first part is that the reality anywhere in the in the world, uh, wherever you do not have good relations uh, or rather improved relations with communities, uh, the likelihood is that uh, you're not going to achieve a lot, you know. So on the other aspect, I think uh, it obviously has to relate to the police management as well, you know. The role that they play, of course, in engaging society, in engaging unions, uh, which represent the workers themselves, to ensure that their rights are, of, of course, uh, protected, would be one of the aspects which you need to obviously be looked into. And yet again, you know, under any circumstances where you can even have the best police uh, service, the reality is that uh, living under conditions where a majority of people, of course, live under the breadline, uh, would still uh, obviously factor into the kind of work or rather the, the level of uh, input that police officers make throughout the so those are the, the socio-economic challenges mm. that also needs to be into as we move towards ensuring that we get a safer country. Now, when you spoke about um, management, uh, the uh, police ministry and uh, um, the sector has been uh, gripped or rather rocked by uncertainty um, when it comes to Commissioner uh, Piecha and, of course, uh, um, her position at this time. Are you, as Pop Crew, satisfied with the type of management that has been you know, overseeing things in this particular um, sector? Look, uh, currently we are not satisfied, and of course we've raised our views. Uh, there are a number of uh, unilateral decisions that have been taken, of course, excluding the role that uh, stakeholders uh, play, and of course this regarding uh, bargaining council agreements uh, under which uh, uh, there's supposed to be some form of uh, ensuring that we work together in resolving some of the challenges. Uh, uh, well, basically these are all, well, it's our collective effort anyway to ensure that uh, conditions of police are improved. So the management currently, we I think their focus has been elsewhere instead of where the issues are really happening on the ground and ensuring that there are agent measures which would have been taken long ago to ensure that police officers' lives are protected. Mm-hmm. That has not been coming forth and of course many other disputes as well that are coming forth. The current restructuring, for example, within the SAPS, which is a, again a unilateral decision on, on the part of the management. Mm-hmm. So some of the things are just challenges really that we are of course as a union obviously looking closely into and of course doing something about it. When we speak about police, you know, there's been a lot of criticism around uh, corruption within uh, um, uh, the police services and um, the policemen themselves, you know, engaging in corrupt activity. As POP crew, what then becomes your role as a union? Our role is very clear. We, of course, have a constitution which stipulates the kind of members that we wish to have and, of course, uh, members that are of integrity. And, of course, we've got a political drive. We've got a goal to achieve, of course, uh, that of ensuring that uh, besides the issues that directly deal with police, but also broadly focus on the socioeconomic conditions and look into the factors that would, of course, influence such tendencies. And again, I think with this case, again, we must not perhaps give an impression that there's not been anything done towards uh, addressing that challenge, of course. Corruption is a general challenge, and of course, we have ensured that that I think uh, IP as well has ensured that uh, those who are, of course, found who have been involved in some criminal activities are persecuted. Richard Mamabulu is the communications officer at the Police and Prison Civil Rights Union, Pop Crew in South Africa, talking to Zikon Miso. As the Gauteng Health Department in South Africa reports two more cases of the typhoid fever in the province, the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, NICD, has called for South Africans not to panic, saying there is no outbreak. This is the latest infection, and it brings the total number of cases reported to six in a space of just a few days. The disease has 
so far claimed the life of one person. In our weekly look at health issues, we focus attention on what typhoid is, how it's transmitted, and what the general public can do to keep the bacterial infection at bay with Professor Lucille Bloomberg, Deputy Director at the NICD. Look, I think we need to understand that there are, you know, there are more than 100 cases normally reported every year in South Africa. So typhoid is not entirely unusual. There is a seasonal increase in January, often related to travel, often to neighboring countries. So I think what we're seeing is not something uh, different to previous years. Now, for the benefit of some of our listeners, Professor, who may not know, what exactly is typhoid and who can get it? So it's a specific bacteria. It's a a germ, a bacterial germ. It's um, called Salmonella typhi, and that's the specific name. And it comes from humans. So there will be a very small percentage of the population who might have had typhoid, recover, but become chronic carriers. And um, they can shed the bacteria and they're still, and they can infect other people through usually poor hygiene because the bacteria is found in the feces and then through food preparation or get into the water supply, which is an informal one, you can infect other people. Um, but anybody who is ill from typhoid or is a carrier has a risk of passing it on to other people through generally poor hygiene practices. You spoke about the fact that typhoid is not unusual in South Africa. Where in the country does it normally occur? Well, we see it, uh, in fact, we see a couple of cases everywhere in the country. So, you know, I think what was noticed in, in Kharteng that over quite a short period, it was probably about a week, there were four cases, one of the cases died, and I think the alarm was raised and, you know, prompted an investigation. But um, an outbreak would be where you have large number of cases from a common source. So it's important, uh, a food and water common source. So it's important to follow up all confirmed cases of typhoid to see where they may have acquired it. Uh, If it looks like it's a a common water or a food source and there are a number of people involved, one would, would consider that to be an outbreak. But that wasn't the case here. Now, there's a lot of confusion around this disease, Professor. Does it also affect animals? No, there is no origin in animals and it does not cause illness in animals. There is a, a different kind of salmonella that is absolutely animal-related. But salmonella typhi affects people and has its origin in people. Remind us again, what are some of the signs and symptoms that people need to look out for? So they're very non-specific, and that's the problem. You know, headache high fever, cold shivers, hot sweats, tiredness, abdominal pain uh, would be important uh, symptoms. So we need to remember that, you know, those are, are not specific to typhoid. And there are a lot of other infectious diseases, actually more common ones, that are important to consider in this region, particularly at this time of the year, that are not typhoid. And I think malaria is the most important one. Malaria season also presents with fever, headache, cold shivers, hot sweats, flu-like illness. It's treacherous. It's rapidly progressive. And it's the most important one to think of, diagnose quickly and treat urgently at this time. People who've traveled or live in malaria areas. How is it diagnosed? So malaria is diagnosed on a a blood test and it can be done quite quickly. And sometimes you have to repeat it more than once. Typhoid is also diagnosed on a very special blood test. Mm. And it looks very much the same. So, you know, I think if you have a patient with fever, headache, they may or may not have traveled, you have to consider typhoid. But if there's a travel history or they live in a malaria area, malaria has to be number one because, you know, it's treatable. I think what we didn't mention was you find typhoid in the feces of humans who are infected. 
and then um, this poor hygienists can contaminate water and food. So that is the usual source. It's not easily person-to-person directly. Also touch on some of the treatment options of typhoid. How is it treated? So it is uh, antibiotics are effective. You need to use some specific antibiotics. It may not be the ones that you use for full throats or, or ears or pneumonia, but they respond uh, well to antibiotics. There is a little bit of resistance to some antibiotics, but we still have very effective ones. How can the disease be prevented, Professor? It's really about safe water supplies and it's about good hygiene. Obviously, people must wash their hands after toilets and absolutely before they prepare food, especially if the food is not going to be cooked. High heat will um, actually destroy typhoid, the typhoid germ in food. And then it's about having good um, ablution, sanitation and clean water. For someone who's listening to us right now and wants to know more about typhoid, where can they go to find more information? Well, you know, I think if they have a high fever and headache, they really need to seek urgent care. I had a clinic or their doctor mentioned that they may have traveled and raised the possibility of malaria, number one, and the possibility of typhoid. I think people are thinking a lot more about typhoid now because the profile is raised, but malaria is still the commonest one. For more information, we have a, a website where there's a lot of commonly asked questions and hopefully good answers. It's www.nicd.ac.za. Professor Lucille Bloomberg is the Deputy Director of the National Institute of Communicable Diseases in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Ledecha. 17.30 Central African Time. Here's Wasani Matabula with your news headlines. Your top stories in this hour, African states uh, push uh, President Pierre Nkurunziza to accept uh, peacekeeping troops at a summit to prevent Burundi sliding back into ethnic violence. And the Iranian President Hassan Rouhani says uh, the U.S. Uh, cannot solve any problems in the Middle East without its help. And Nepad asked uh, Malawi to engage uh, local suppliers of medicinal products in its quest to deal with the shortage of drugs in hospitals. These were the stories making headlines. You still listen to Africa Digest with Ms. Pomela Lezondi right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Remember that you can send us your emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on Twitter, it's Channel Africa One. Today, the world observes International Holocaust Remembrance Day. In light of this, the United Nations Information Center earlier hosted an interactive educational program at War School for Trecherwochte in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. Maureen Ngandu is from the United Nations Information Center. She joins us on the line to give us a breakdown of today's activities. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest, Maureen. Thank you very much. Maureen, could you just tell us about the significance of this day, of International Holocaust Remembrance Day? Well, thanks. The significance is that uh, we want the world to reflect on what happened in the past, uh, but also to honor the victims of the Holocaust. And by the way, it's not just the Holocaust that we were commemorating. It's also uh, the genocide that happened in Rwanda in 1994. But also significantly to remind people of the tragedy 
at also of to, to to just be aware to avoid uh, such um, incidents happening in future. So it was educational. It was uh, very emotional, in the sense that. Um, we heard actual stories from survivors of what they went through during the Holocaust, both uh, during the World War, Second World War, and during the Rwandan genocide. And, um, you know, poking the emotion obviously um, creates a sense of um, responsibility, a very strength, a strong sense of feeling about what happened at that time. And it also pricks the conscience of one. So that was the significance of this. And also to say that it's not just a one-off thing. This is an event that's been uh, um, observed throughout the world, and here in South Africa, in Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Durban. Today in uh, in the school at Water School for Trachewachter um, in South Africa, you you were in a school. Do you find how do you find that um, kids engage with the stories that were um, and the testimonies that are being given at the event in Pretoria? Yeah, the kids were very, uh, it was very interactive. And I think what is interesting was to see the level at which they understood the history of what happened that time. These are grade 9 students who supposedly will be studying the subject in their history lessons. And um, they were very engaged. They were actually shocked. Like I said, some of it was very vivid. There was a short video which showed... um, uh, snippets of what happened, what the Jews in particular in Germany and uh, parts of Europe had to go through. You know, the gas chambers, the segregation, um, where the, the elderly, infirmed, and young children were sent to gas chambers, and those who were supposedly stronger were sent into concentration camps where they were literally starved to death. So visuals like that obviously um, touch on the emotion of children. So I think that it was a very highly sensi- sensitive um, but the relevant experience, and the children reacted to it in very interesting ways. They had some questions. They were responding to some of the questions that were being asked. And I think it was also a very reflective time for them because what we said, our message at the United Nations was, let us look at this and let's look at our own situation. How does this apply to us here in South Africa? What are the lessons? We had apartheid in South Africa. There's still um, fragments of, of racism in the country. There was the genocide in Rwanda, which is not very far off from here. At the same time when South Africa was uh, observing a very significant time in its history, in April 1994, Nelson Mandela was being sworn in as president of a democratic country, whereas millions of people were being butchered to death in uh, Rwanda, uh, mainly because of the tribe in which they came from and the way they looked. So um, how then does this affect us? And for you, the message was, let us be sensitive, let us respect diversity, let us respect diversity in terms of culture, religion, race, and gender. And also there's this buzzword here in South Africa, the spirit of Ubuntu. What is Ubuntu? It's all about humanity. And this is the theme of uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day this year. So... It's a, it's basically, it's not a far-fetched um, concept or far-fetched occurrence. It's just about how I live with the person next to me, be it the person I work with, the person I go to school with, and so on. So that was the whole purpose, and I think that is the sort of emotion that we invoked into the children this, this morning.
Um, Maureen, you saying that you were also commemorating the genocide in Rwanda. Um, uh, do you find that there is as much awareness of the Rwandan genocide as there is of the Holocaust? Unfortunately not. I mean, the Holocaust uh, took place um, more than 70 years ago. And, um, of course, because it's more than 70 years ago, the messages have been repeated several times. It's been well documented. It's commemorated every year. This event has been commemorated officially by the United Nations since 2005. And but information well and education... But Sorry, Maureen, but yes. you're saying it's over 70 years ago, but one would think that with time, um, people tend to forget a, so, uh, a, a, a lot of events that take place in history. And yet the, the genocide was so recent, and yet it seems like it's... Uh, it's almost forgotten in many places. That's, that's correct. You'd think that people forget, but I think the torch has been kept lighting in terms of what happened during uh, the Holocaust, and that is why it's not been easy to forget it, because it's repeated, it's uh, spoken of regularly. We see documentaries, we see a lot of movies, some award-winning movies that are shown on television and in, in the cinemas and so on. With the Rwandan genocide, um, yes, the this, this story still resonates, but I think that the, maybe the message needs to be intensified about what happened. I think, the, you know, for instance, when I was at school, we learned about the genocide in our history lessons. I don't know whether the Rwandan genocide is actually in the curricula, curriculum of uh, most educational institutions, not only here in South Africa, but on the continent. So, yes, what happened... Uh, more than 70 years ago is still vivid. The message is still resonating because it's been repeated frequently. Whereas I think uh, Rwanda it's observed, I don't know whether people even commemorate this day on, the, on you know, a very large scale, or well, the United Nations does, um, as much as we do the Holocaust. You know, in how many African countries, for instance, uh, uh, stop sometime in April to remember this day? I think it's the 7th of April to commemorate and reflect and talk about these messages. So I think from an African perspective, there's need to intensify this messaging as well because, you know, this is a situation that, that happened that is very close to home. It's an African issue. It's an African problem. You, we see what is happening in Burundi now where, you know, of course there's no genocide happening at the moment, but because of the political processes, the, the United Nations has expressed some concern about, um, you know, and is watching very cleanly, keenly the situation there because, it's, you know, there are parallels in terms of uh, tribal constitution in Burundi as they are in Rwanda. All right, Maureen Kandu, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Maureen Gandhi is the communications officer at the United Nations Information Center in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. And she was talking to us about International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which commemorates both the Holocaust and the genocide in Rwanda. Despite growing interest in safeguarding biodiversity of livestock and poultry, 17% of breeds are at risk of extinction. This is according to a new report by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. The agency warns that many available animal breeds continue to be at risk and calls for stronger efforts to use critical genetic resources sustainability sustainably in order to improve production and food security on a warmer, more crowded planet. FAO's latest report on the state of the world's animal genetic resources for food and agriculture provides new data and analysis on the country trends for concerned experts in the field. 
Beat Sheriff, an annual production officer with FAO, gives us more insights into the new report. When we talk about livestock diversity, we talk about the diversity of around 38 animal species, ranging from cattle, goats, sheep, pig to rabbits, chicken and so on. But we also talk about the diversity of breeds within each of these species. And today we are using around 8,000 breeds for food and agriculture in agricultural production. And these breeds are adapted to very different environments, production environments, and sometimes very extreme environments, and they may be also resistant to specific animal diseases. So the breeds are specially matched to the environments and also to the needs of humankind and provide humankind with very different products. There are a whole variety of cheeses that we know, different meats, eggs, fiber, and so on, but also of roles. So they are needed, for example, to maintain landscape. And according to this second report on the state of world's animal genetic resources for food and agriculture, what are the main causes of genetic erosion? There are many different threats. The problem is that these breeds, they may go extinct if they are not used in appropriate numbers. And just to give you one example, many developing countries are reporting as the biggest threat unplanned introduction of exotic breeds and exotic animals, which reduces their own well-adapted livestock breeds. These exotic animals are producing more milk and more meat and eggs and are considered more profitable. But on the other hand, they require much more inputs like better quality feed, more feed, and they may not produce regularly offspring and they may fall more often sick or even die. So it's far more risky for the livestock keeper. Is livestock diversity more at risk in some regions rather than others? If so, why? This is very difficult to say because there are still very big data gaps. What we can say is that there are big differences in the capacities of countries to maintain their natural resources, including their local breeds, which they developed over the last 10,000 years. Um, The data that has been reported to FAO suggests that 17 of the breeds that we know about are extremely known numbers now, and there is a risk of extinction. But this may be a big underestimate because for two-thirds of all these 8,000 breeds, we don't have any indication on their population size. And since the release of the first report in 2007, has there been much improvement in how countries are dealing with their animal genetic resources? Um, There certainly is much higher political awareness now. Many countries reported to us that they have developed legislation targeting the better management of animal genetic resources. From the 200 countries of the world, more than 177 have now tasked a person specifically to coordinate all the activities around animal genetic resources in the country. And at more technical level, 64 countries have reported that they have established gene banks to store frozen semen of their local breeds. And 41 countries are in the process of doing so. In comparison, in 2007, only 10 countries reported that they have established such gene banks. So what still needs to be done? There are still enormous knowledge gaps, particularly the specific numbers of animals within each breed would be required to enable policymakers to make informed decisions because informed decisions depend on reliable data. But a second important need would be the education of people at all levels, starting from farmers and livestock keepers in terms of animal breeding, but up to policymakers that they understand the significance of this resource for their country. How is FAO supporting this? 
In 2007, countries adopted a global plan of action for animal genetic resources as the first international policy framework. And since that time, FAO in particularly provides countries with assistance in the implementation of this global framework. We develop a number of guideline documents. We provide capacity building workshops at regional level. We have a very large email-based discussion group where we regularly communicate with more than 3,000 people in the world. So these are just a few examples besides actual projects in countries. That is Pete Scherf, who is an animal production officer with the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, and that is FAO, and talking to FAO's radius, Sandra Ferrari. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 17.45 Central African Time. It's time for your economic news. Here's Rosanna Matabula. Good evening, Nigeria's Nairobi. Rather, Kenya's Nairobi Securities Exchange has signed up uh, six lenders as a clearing banks for its yet-to-be-launched derivatives market. The NSC, an entry point for foreign funds keen to tap robust growth in East African economies, has been planning to start offering derivatives trading since last year. The six banks are Barclays Bank of Kenya, Cooperative Bank of Kenya, CFCB Stanbic, NIC Bank, Chase Bank, and CBA Bank. It's planned to launch a derivatives market based on underlying financial instruments such as currencies and equities has already pre- received approval from Regulatory Capital Markets Authority. And Ghana's producer price inflation rose sharply to 10.5% in December from 3% the month before, pushed by increases in utility tariffs. The country is under a three-year IMF aid program to address financial problems that includes high budget deficits and consumer inflation persistently above government targets. Ghana's utility regulator almost doubled tariffs for electricity and water in December. This is in a renewed bid to attract competitive private investment. And the South African government says the newly signed pension tax laws will go ahead with a review only in two years' time. This comes after an outrage from private and public labor unions. The tax laws limit lump sum payments to workers to just a third and forces them to convert the rest into annuities accessed via a monthly allowance. 
Angela Bolowane reports. President Jacob Zuma says complaints by unions that there was never extensive consultation on the tax administration laws are incorrect and misleading. He says there was a total of 40 meetings with NEDLAC and labor unions between 2012 and last year. He says there was also a public comment period and those comments were considered when the law was finalized. Zuma adds that parliament required the law which comes into effect on March 1st be reviewed in two years. This is despite Labor Federation, COSATU and Metal Workers Union, NUMSA, threatening a massive strike action if the laws are not repealed. Angela Bologna, CBC News, John is back. The year 2015 was a good one for most uh, formal income earners in South Africa. That's according to the latest Bank Save Africa Disposable Salary Index. The index shows uh, that uh, the average take-home salary was 900 US dollars per month for the year. On average, take-home salaries increased by 6.7% last year, down from the 8.8% increase in 2014. In real terms, salaries were 2% higher, beating the average rate of inflation of 4.6%. Economist Mike Schusler explains. People have more disposable income. At the same time, we've been paying back some of our debt. So despite the horror stories of South Africans in huge debt and huge problems, if you look at the National Credit Regulator data, if you look at the Reserve Bank data, the official data sources, and even from the courts, Yes, there are thousands of people in trouble still, but the numbers have actually come down. The consumer that is working in the formal sector, that employee is doing rather okay. And Burundi's year-on-year inflation has accelerated to 7.1% in December from 5.8% in November, following rising costs of some food on the market. Burundi's economy relies heavily on coffee and tea exports. It has faced increasing pressure since it was thrown into a turmoil last April when President Pierre Nkurunziza said he will run for a third term in office. And that's your economics news. Thank you very much, Osani, for that sports, uh, for that economic update. It's time for your sports update now. Here's Mosibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, South Africa's national women's football team, Banyana Banyana, are in their second week of their first phase of preparations for the Rio Olympic Games, set for August in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, later this year. Banyana Banyana head coach Vera Bo says she aims to use the little, um, rather the title of underdogs, to the surprise package of the tournament. Bo says she will use the African Women's Championship qualifiers and play um, and play against countries which qualify for the Olympics in the final phase of her team's preparations. The Dutch mentor also says she faces a selection headache as she also has to trim down the 29-woman professional squad. Our target is that we want to make an impact over there. We want that after the Olympics, nobody's ignoring us anymore. We are the team that nobody knows. Um, we, are, we have the players that nobody knows. And after the Olympics, that will be behind us because I'm absolutely sure that the, the core of this group 
is better than many players that have professional contracts at the moment. So I do hope that the lives of the players really change, that they will sign contracts abroad after the Olympics. The Johannesburg Stock Exchange on Wednesday honored PSL Chairman Dr. Ivan Koza, PSL Executive Committee member Kaza Mutawung, and one of the country's celebrated football icons, Jomo Sono. The trio also opened formal trading at 9 p.m. Central African time at the JSC headquarters in Santon in Johannesburg. Prima Soccer League Chairman Dr. Ivan Koza thanked the Johannesburg Stock Exchange management and board for recognizing the role played by domestic football in the country's economy. I am prepared to work with the Johannesburg Exchange using this rich frequency and appeal of football to socialize and educate future generations to become retail investors with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The business of football is a business of passion. It is socialized very early in our supporters' lives. Support for football clubs provides supporters with an unmatched sense of belonging. On to cricket news. Bangladesh beat South Africa by 43 runs in the first match of the Under-19 Cricket World Cup in Chittagong, Bangladesh. Bangladesh won the toss and reached 240 for seven in the innings. South Africa's fast bowler was, um, or rather best bowler, was Wayne Mulder, who took three for 42 runs. South Africa's chase never really got going, despite a fighting 100 from opener Liam Smith. The team was bowled out for 197 but only had eight balls left to face. In the other match on Wednesday, England thrashed Fiji by 299 runs after making 371 for three and 50 overs. England bowled out the Fijians for just 72 runs. All of us believe that with everything in the news and the... On to tennis news. World Tennis authorities say they'll conduct an independent review into the effectiveness of anti-corruption practice in the sport. The announcement was made at the Australian Open. It emerged earlier that over the past 10 years, 16 tennis players ranked at times in the top 50 have been repeatedly flagged to the Tennis Integrity Unit over suspicions that thrown matches. President of the Association of Tennis Professionals, Chris Kamada, says the aim of the investigation is to restore public confidence in the sport. All of us believe that with everything in the news and the serious allegations that have been thrown at our sport, the last thing anyone wants is another sports body investigating itself, um, which is why we have taken this very bold step to commission a completely independent review. And the most important point is that we have committed to act on every recommendation. Zaius Forces at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest.
1955 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. The Executive Council of the African Union has begun its two-day deliberations on the agenda of the 26th African Union Summit. Cameroon has closed most of its northern markets on the border with Nigeria. And despite growing interest in safeguarding biodiversity of livestock and poultry, 17% of breeds are still at risk of extinction. In business, Kenya's Nairobi Securities Exchange signs up six leaders as clearing banks for its yet-to-be-launched derivatives market. In sports, South Africa's Banyana Banyana in the first phase of preparations for Rio Olympics. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumale Lezondi, producer Jose Dengake, technical producer Catherine Malika and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za on SMS, we're on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five on Twitter channel Africa One. We leave you with Maratebo by Sam Mangwana. L'international Sam Mangwana vous parle depuis Paris. Yeah! Malheureux imitateurs. Aïe, 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 maman, Te vola, te vola, te vola, te vola.